My name is Falana Silberberg. I'm a partner in the Corporate and Capital Markets Group at Watson Farley and Williams. Um, I have an excellent panel here to talk about a very interesting topic, very broad, carbon emissions and the race to net zero. Um, I am joined by, let's go in order, Jan Willem. Um, Jan is the America's lead at Cargill. And next is Richard Tao, um, business development leader uh, at DNV. Um, and next is uh, Hawkkite Powell, Senior VP for Decarbonization at Marsoft. Uh, Randy Givens, uh, EVP of Investor Relations and Business Development at Navigator Gas. And finally, Hamish Norton, President of Starbelt Carriers Corp. Welcome. Um, as we all know, shipping transports close to 80% of the global trade by volume and is estimated to contribute about 2 to 3% of greenhouse ga gas emissions, a very important uh, fact. It's very relevant in our industry, and um, we are very focused on reducing carbon emissions, especially given the recent uh, IMO uh, benchmarks that were established just earlier this year, or I should say revised earlier this year, for a 20 to 30 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, with net zero achieved by 2050. Uh, so those are, <laughs> I don't know if we can make it there. Um, I'd like to start by um, uh, asking each of our panelists to discuss how do you see the industry reaching net zero emissions by 2050? Uh, and it's two part. Uh, the next part is in the shorter term, what are the priority steps in the next five years? And I'd like to start with um, actually Randy Hamish and Jan Willem, and then Hawk and Richard, you can provide uh, your perspectives as well. So, uh, Hamish, you want to start off? Sure, sure. I can, I can start out. You know, I think the, the highest priority steps are, are the steps that we know how to, how to use to save fuel. Um, and so, um, you know, I think the uh, first thing is to go slower because the, the ships burn fuel in rough proportion to the cube of the speed. So the, if we go a little bit slower, we save a lot of fuel. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's measuring the performance of our ships uh, in, a, in a precise way with instrumentation and telemetry and using the knowledge of how the ships uh, perform to optimize their, their voyages, uh, you know, optimize the routes and speeds based on the weather they'll encounter. Um, and then hull fouling is probably the single most important contributor to excess consumption after speed. Um, and so we have to keep the hull sparkling clean. Uh, and, you know, we'll do that with uh, more expensive paints than have been used in the past, but also um, hull cleaning robots, uh, which the, the technology is being developed very rapidly right now. Um, and ultrasonic anti-fouling, where the technology is, I think, developing maybe a bit more slowly. Um, and, and then, you know, the, there is uh, air lubrication, um, which is, again, being developed uh, for dry bulk ships where it hasn't worked very well in the past, but I think new technologies will work well. Um, and, and then there's wind-assisted ship propulsion, um, and, you know, there are different, different technologies work better or worse for different kinds of ships. But, you know, I think that's going to get us to 2030 um, 
with a, you know, sort of, that, that saves 20, 25%, maybe even more. Um, and, and then, you know, we have to start thinking about new fuels. Um, you know, there's LNG, which, you know, may be, be becoming, you know, less popular, and methanol and ammonia, which seem to be becoming more popular. Uh, and, you know, you can't order an ammonia ship yet, but soon. And then I think to get us to net zero in 2050, we probably have to, in 2040, start adding some nuclear propulsion to the mix, but we'll see. Yeah, from Navigator's perspective, certainly on the short term, and what we're doing now is all of these uh, aforementioned items, anti-fouling paints and haul upgrades, propeller upgrades, um, operating efficiency, right, using different softwares to really optimize your routes. And then longer term, as you know, Hamish was saying, getting into clean ammonia, blue ammonia, green ammonia for the fuel propulsion. Obviously at Navigator we carry ammonia on the ships, so it's pretty uh, easy eventually to start running uh, the ships on that same ammonia. So that's what we're looking at over the next handful of years uh, to develop that further with the engine manufacturers and uh, DNV and, and others um, to really get those engines going. So that's a longer term project, uh, but by 2050, how many vessels today on the water are going to be around? Zero, right, or very, very few. So we think 2050, the, the goal is still achievable, but it will take uh, a lot of progress over the next five years. Well, in addition to what they're saying, like the, the IMO strategy from the summer, updated strategy, will, in our opinion, um, become policy, and that will literally transform the roadmap for every company and organization in shipping. So to our mind, you have to be prepared, have a roadmap for yourself, a strategy, a team in place to face this, and, um, and a collaboration network, the right, to have the right collaborations in place to make these changes happen. For cargo ocean transportation, we've been on a decarb strategy uh, rollout since 2017, so this is, we started a few years ago, um, with multiple projects for the immediate, medium term, long term. As we speak, our, you may have seen it in the news, our wind wings equipped Pixis Ocean is, is literally sailing across the oceans and we have several other wind assisted uh, projects on the water. In terms of, uh, we've, we've ordered five methanol dual fuel ships. Those are the first bulkers that we ordered with that ability. And in terms of biofuels, we are stopped trialing, we're now definitely in execution phase and we've up to date, since the end of September, we've provided 90,000 tons of FAME biofuels in Singapore and in the Netherlands. Um, we're also heavily involved in the Global Maritime Forum and getting to zero coalition because we really want to, we can and want to play that role of, of a catalyst for this change in this field. Lastly, in our collaboration, um, we are charterers. Right? We operate about 700 ships on any given day. Last year I saw over 1,900 different ships. Um, but we're not afraid to be a development partner and invest and take risks with, with partners to get some of these projects going and share the insights. Um, and it's not just on the ship side or the fuel side, but we also believe in the supply chains that we manage for us and for others. And in the ports, there's a lot of opportunity still to improve. Just before we get to Richard, I have a follow-up for Jan. You mentioned the wind wings, which made headlines and 
everybody has heard about this amazing technology. Is it a long-term solution? Yeah, I th well, I think so. Um, we think so because the wind is free and any technology that just lowers the amount of fuel, whatever that future fuel is going to be, uh, that can assist, is only helpful. And yes, it's costly, but obviously when we all project that the future fuels will have a, a significant cost premium, the payback time of these type of technologies uh, will be a lot better. But that's why we're trialing this. It's an experiment. Let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're learning as we go now with, with this ship on the water and see how it works. Okay, I think uh, towards this uh, wing assistant proposal, now currently there's about 28 vessels has that equipment on board. So, and there's a lot of study on how yeah. efficient can help. But come back to, to the first question. I think uh, the IMO has revised the, the decomposition trajectories. And uh, as you point out, that the uh, 2030, 20%, 2040, 70%, and the 2050 carbon neutral. And then uh, by first glance, we think that uh, 2030 will be easier, but actually, if you look at the supply and the demand for alternative fuel or carbon fuel, neutral fuel, that is the uh, most challenging uh, target. And currently, the shipping consume about 280 uh, million ton uh, fuel, and, uh, and it is projected that by 2030, that figure will go to 300 million. And, uh, and if we need to achieve 20% decomposition by 2030, we estimate that approximately 17 uh, million uh, carbon neutral fuel need to be provided. That is on the demand side, but we also look at the supply side and see those carbon neutral fuel, where this come from. And we look at about 2,200 uh, uh, projects. Some are ongoing and some are, are planned. If we add in those likelihood for those uh, production, by 2030, we estimate about 50 to 60 million ton of carbon neutral fuel. So, which means that uh, the shipping will have to consume 30 to 40 percent of uh, total carbon neutral fuel. Bearing in mind, those fuel are also demanded by aviation, by land transportation. Just make sense of that currently uh, shipping consuming about 3 percent of the fuel. So, Definitely, it's a very, very challenging. It's unlikely that carbon neutral fuel will be the solution uh, to reach the goal. Then how to reach the goal? I think you have mentioned about the, the energy efficiency measures. I think those are very, very important. In addition to that, I think we also need the technology advancement and, and the innovation. I think I agree uh, with Hamish and, and the other panelists that the focus in the near term needs to be on energy efficiency. Uh, and actually the economics of investing in improving fuel efficiency of a commercial ship are pretty compelling for those first 10, 15, 20 percent maybe even. The challenge uh, based on our experience at Marsoft working with a large range of ship owners is that uh, for some owners, they don't necessarily realize themselves the value of the fuel saved, or they may have a short horizon on uh, the expected retention of the ships. They may face a significant probability of selling the ships before those investments are recouped. And so 
Those are some of the things I think that are holding back investment in energy efficiency in some instances. Um, fortunately, from my perspective, the pressure to do that and the incentives to make those investments in shipping are increasing, uh, both from the general recognition that the, the social cost of carbon is probably higher than what uh, we have assumed, um, and because a growing fraction of shipping is likely to uh, benefit from or be impacted by, depending on your perspective, uh, both regulated carbon markets like the ETS in Europe uh, and others, and voluntary carbon markets where owners who make uh, extraordinary investments in energy efficiency can uh, benefit from carbon credit sales. And those things, I think, will help uh, speed the investment in that energy efficiency. In the longer run, I think it's an open question and probably not a single solution for all of the shipping industry. Uh, but I think what's really needed today is uh, a serious commitment by innovative owners to try out things and experiment and push the technology. And I'm pleased to see that we're seeing that uh, with many of the owners that we work with. And actually, I did forget to mention that when carbon taxes are high enough or when there's enough of the world that has a, is covered by an emissions trading scheme, Carbon capture and storage can be very important. We, we've tested two different technologies out on one of our ships, and it works. It's expensive, uh, but it works. Um, before moving on to incentives, I did want to touch on fuel, since be, uh, that's a topic we've been talking about. We've heard every panelist mention how important fuel is, uh, ener um, net zero carbon emission fuel. Um, what is the fuel of the future is, is our question, and it's, it's important to identify this before 2050. Um, Richard, can you discuss some of the trends you're seeing in new building orders and uh, what companies are thinking about in selecting the fuel of the future between LNG, I mean, we, we, uh, ammonia, well, what are you seeing? I think uh, just to answer this question, I have to check uh, this morning about the DMV alternative fuel inside. So we're keeping tracking of all the vessel fleet and, and the new building order. So the latest figure up to this morning was that uh, uh, there's about 2% of the world fleet are running alternative fuel, uh, are capable of running alternative fuel, where LNG is about 1.68%. LPG 0.3% and methanol 0.05%. But if you look at the total order book, the in, in terms of gross tonnage, there's 44% of the, the, the world fleet are in the order book are able to run alternative fuel, where LNG is taking a big part of that, 27.8%, and the methanol is 13%. And then uh, followed by the LPG and the hydrogen. And, uh, but in this year, 2023, we see, we have, we have seen a big jump for the methanol. Currently, for this year, 27% of the, of the new building order is during the methanol, and followed by LNG and LPG. 
So that's interesting. So LNG initially was the leader, and now it's turning to methanol. Turning to methanol. And there's actually no uh, indication from, for ammonia yet. So what I can surmise from this is there is no clear indication yet if the industry is still shifting. Yeah. Um, I, I'll turn this next question to Hamish, Randy, and Jan. What are the primary factors relevant to your segments when considering alternative fuels and the timing of new building orders in view of this, this uncertainty in the fuel of the future? Well, uh, at STAR, we have not reached a level of certainty as to what the fuel of the future is going to be yet sufficient to persuade us to place a new building order. Um, I, you know, I, I, I believe we are thinking that it's probably going to be ammonia, at least for the larger ships. But for the smaller ships, even if, even if ammonia is the most common fuel for the larger ships, it's not clear that our smaller ships will be able to bunker in ports that will have access to ammonia. And, uh, you know, ammonia is, uh, d d despite the fact that Randy's company carries it safely every day, uh, it's not proven in engine applications yet. And, and, you know, it would be good at least to see that it works. Stay, stay tuned. We're coming with that. Um, <laughs> but, yes, when we're looking at new builds, which, again, to be clear, we're spending a lot more time looking at secondhand acquisitions than new builds. But... Looking at new builds, it's all about fuel availability, right? We operate handy-sized vessels, so in dozens of ports around the world. So with that, it's really a chicken and egg problem. Do you build the ship and then hope the infrastructure comes, or do you wait for the infrastructure, then build the ship to match? Um, so for us, ammonia will be the future fuel uh, for Navigator for sure, but in terms of placing those orders, we're still a few years away. So you asked about the factors and the timing. Um, for us, it's a, a balance between doability and efficiency. So ammonia may have the higher efficiency, even if it's actually quite low. Maybe she taught me last night. Um, the, the methanol is probably more doable. That's why we ordered those dual fuel uh, bulkers. Um, green corridors might happen, and maybe there's a specific application of fuel on those uh, green corridors, but you're asking a bulk trader, and we tramp around the globe. It's not a point A to point B liner service. So for us, it's also very important that the fuel, whatever it's going to be, is readily available in many points around the globe. Otherwise, you might find ballasting your ship or taking on way too much fuel versus what you need. Um, Timing-wise, the IMO has set this target that um, my colleagues are talking about, that 5 to 10 percent will have to come from new resources. That's significant because the actual policies by the IMO won't come out for another few years. It's a strategy, not a policy. Um, so we don't know exactly what uh, is going to make sense, but we want to have these dual fuel bulkers to at least have a discussion with our customers to see, uh, to have something to talk about, to have a discussion, okay, is this something you want to get involved with, even if the future is not 100% clear. sounds like timing is still a little bit uncertain, but at some point, somebody has to jump um, and make a commitment. And I'm curious, when, when is that timing so that companies are well-placed to meet the demand, you know, come 2050? <laughs> <laughs> you want to ask me? Uh, 
actually, it's not 2050 at all. Um, if you paid attention to what's just been decided by every single nation on the planet, is that by 2040, we're going to cut um, these emissions uh, for 70, striving for 80 of total emissions, which actually means an intensity cut of 90 plus. So basically, 2040 is the deadline that we're going to have to have pretty much every ship that, you know, before that on the water has to be neutral. Um, if you think about that, these policies will not be set in stone for at least several years. Actually, we're talking a 13-year time frame. That's extremely short. It's not something 2050, like, we'll deal with it later when we're all retired. No, this is going to happen much sooner. And, and I suspect that, um, you know, at least for dry bulk, that the orders will not be placed soon enough to, to meet the, the uh, IMO schedule in a, in a uh, let's say, a comfortable way. I think the, 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 fleet, the fleet of good ships will get older. Uh, the, the, there is a substantial fraction of the dry bulk fleet which are very heavy fuel consumers. These may get regulated effectively out of the business. And, you know, what you'll see, I think, is that charter rates will start going up as the, a bunch of the fleet gets regulated out of existence. And with those high charter rates, people will be able to afford to start ordering more adventurous technologies. Um, and, and, and while at the same time probably using carbon capture to keep some of the older, high-quality ships going. Very interesting. Hamish, I'll, I'll continue with you. Um, you mentioned possibly the use of nuclear energy, and I'm curious, what are the benefits that you see from that? Well, okay, so, so if you use electricity to make electrolyzed hydrogen, that's about 60% efficient the way it's done currently. And then if you use the hydrogen to make ammonia, that's about 80% efficient. And then if you burn the ammonia in an engine to make power, that's about 35% efficient. So you've lost at least 80% of your energy in those conversion steps. Whereas if you put the electricity generation on board the ship, you know, that's 95% efficient generating the electricity and then 95% efficient using the electricity to run the motor. You know, you, you, you've lost 10%. Um, so, you know, if energy costs anything, it's a lot cheaper to put it directly where it's needed. Just a compliment to this one. I think DMV latest the marine time forecast 2050, and we talked about the nuclear as the uh, case. And uh, we look at the nuclear power container ship, 15,000 TEU, going from uh, Europe to, to, to Far East. And then we assign the, the leasing model for the nuclear uh, reactor. So look at the CAPEX and OPEX, and, uh, and, uh, and we assign the high case and low case. And the, the conclusion was that the, the low case of nuclear, the cost is, uh, is feasible. Yeah. And, you know, uh, small modular reactors made in a factory in large series that are walk-away safe appear to be coming soon. We'll see. But, you know, again, technology has to be proven much like ammonia.
So I'd like to shift to um, the cost of implementing these technologies. Um, Hawk, in your opinion, are there proper economic incentives in place to decarbonize shipping in the short term and the long term? Uh, I think there are, uh, but as I mentioned, it depends on the owner's operating profile, uh, how they charter out their ships, how long they hold on to ships, whether a serious investment in improving the energy efficiency of an older ship will pay for itself from the owner's perspective. Uh, I think for, for owners who are long-term operators of ships and who have a way to uh, see part of the benefits of the fuel savings directly for themselves, the answer is yes. Um, and the more uh, countries uh, implement schemes to put shipping under regulated carbon uh, pricing mechanisms like the ETS, um, I think there are several other initiatives in the works around the world to do similar things. Unfortunately not, as several speakers today have, have recognized, it would be cleaner and better if there were a uniform global framework for this. The prospects for that, I, I'm not so optimistic about. Um, but anyone whose ship is exposed to the uh, European ETS has plenty of incentive to reduce fuel consumption and make serious investments to do that. More broadly, uh, I think the, the voluntary carbon markets can be an assist in this to owners who, um, who want to make uh, significant additional investments in decarbonization. Those markets um, are currently in a slump because there's been a, I think, healthy and necessary reckoning with uh, voluntary carbon projects that aren't really contributing to decarbonization. But I think they'll come back because I think the demand for serious and verified carbon emission reductions and carbon credit markets is going to be there in the future. And that is something that all owners can take advantage of. Uh, just a question open to the panel. Uh, on your thoughts of whether a global emissions tax is inevitable to achieve an industry-wide decarbonization? Without a global carbon tax or without a tax on carbon that is, exists everywhere in the globe, whether it's a, a, you know, a, a globally organized tax or just a, a number of different taxes that happen to cover the whole globe, Without that, it's going to be very difficult to, to decarbonize because, you, you know, you, you, if, if there's not, in effect, a tax on carbon, for example, then there's no reason to implement carbon capture, for example. I mean, saving fuel always saves money, but saving carbon costs money if you, if you use carbon capture. Um, and, you know, it's not cheap. It's uh, you know, at least $100 a ton. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you might need more to uh, incentivize the appropriate technologies. And, you know, the, the alternative fuels are going to be expensive. Um, 
expensive or more costly, it's a matter of words. But, um, well, I think we welcome any legislative measures that create a clear pathway to decarbonization. Carbon tax is a possibility, it's not the only one, um, but there has to be some economic measures in place to have an investable pathway, right? Otherwise it doesn't work. You could have other measures like minimum standards on assets or limits on carbon intensity as well. Very likely none of these on their own will get us there, so it, it, it's probably going to mix of several initiatives and, and legislative measures. I think just to add to that, uh, from an economic perspective, the, in my view at least, the carbon tax would be the most efficient way to do this because it wouldn't dictate one particular technology solution, wouldn't force anyone to adopt a solution that isn't optimal for their segment of the shipping industry. Uh, and it would create a uh, efficient pathway, in my view, to decarbonization. In some sense, all of these uh, other schemes, like the ETS, which isn't technically a carbon tax, have a very similar effect at the end of the day. They're effectively putting a price on carbon emissions. And that's really what has to happen. Adding to the, the ETS discussion, I think uh, using the ETS, uh, that uh, figure currently, the, the price for the CO2, will add about 50% more uh, cost to the fuel. And uh, so that is the incentive to, for, the, for the owner to do uh, energy efficiency and looking for the alternative fuel. So I think uh, global tax regime will be important uh, element for decarbonization of shipping. That will be a good test. I'm oh, sorry. No, no, I didn't. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the IMO potentially putting in a, a tax and, and what they would do with that money. Um, any ideas on what they should do? <laughs> Invest it back in the industry. Uh, I, I open it to the panel. Well, I, you know, I think I, using the money to fund research into uh, making you know, zero carbon propulsion technologies more practical and less expensive would be very welcome. Uh, but, you know, actually figuring out how to do, how to set up that political uh, mechanism is probably quite challenging. Um, and, you know, the IMO is already challenged uh, quite a bit as is. Uh, I'm not very hopeful that that will be able to be implemented. Yeah, from what I know, that this is a very hot political debate among nations. The small island nations have a very different opinion about what should happen to those funds versus some of the larger nations. So um, I think that's, that's part of a political process that needs to play out. Hmm. And, but they will have to come to some sort of a solution because we need direction. And in terms of positive incentives, are there any in place now for first movers? Um, should there be something in place for those participants who are investing first in alternative solutions? Well, 
I mean, it would be very nice if there were something to compensate first movers, then you would get more first movers. There is actually. The Wind Wings is partly funded by the European Union, for example. So you can, you can have projects that are supported in a variety of ways. I also think the IMO would do well to allow different sectors go at a different paces. It would make intuitive sense to focus on the largest ships that use the most energy. Um, but then you also have to be careful that you don't penalize the most efficient cargo carriers in the world, right? So they need to strike that balance on top of that. That's not easy. Yeah, I guess that, that's, that's a good point. Um, uh, Apple has made a point of moving fewer of its iPhones by air freight and more of its iPhones by sea in order to reduce its carbon emissions because there's a huge reduction in carbon moving from air freight to sea freight. You know, e even before we've addressed any of the carbon emissions of, of ocean transportation. And then I guess there are some grants that you can get from governments. There's certainly large customers that incentivize um, being a forward mover, a uh, first mover in these things, and also from the investor yeah. standpoint, yeah. right? Um, they do value decarbonization efforts. Now, I've done a lot of teach-ins in the last few months, none with Greta Thunberg, right? So she might not be looking directly, but there are many investors who are looking at shipping, are looking at Navigator, asking, what are we doing going forward, right? All of our stakeholders, partners, charterers and investors are wanting a sustainable navigator, also a profitable navigator. So we've been clear that we're not just putting money in these things as a, as a charity, uh, but there are some very attractive and profitable ventures that we're looking at, be it green, blue ammonia, uh, be it CO2 transportation. So there's a lot of um, opportunity there that investors, uh, that appeal to investors as well. And we're working on green corridors. Um, you know, we, we worked on a green corridor project um, with uh, some Australian mining companies um, looking at, at moving iron ore from Australia to East Asia in ammonia-powered ships where the ammonia would be produced in Australia from sunlight. Um, and you know it works, and if if the if everybody is willing to get together and uh, the governments are willing to pr provide the appropriate incentives, it's quite practical to get something like that going in in three or four years. And I guess I'd say again, something that is available to any ship owner who is making uh, substantial additional investments beyond what is industry standard practice in decarbonization, the voluntary carbon credit markets are accessible. Yeah. And that's not going to pay for the whole investment. It's not a grant by any stretch. But it can reduce the net cost to the owner of that investment by uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent probably in many cases. And that, that can uh, help push the decision over the edge, so. Yeah, and we're, we're taking advantage of that, as you know. That's right. So Randy, you touched upon um, the fact that your stakeholders care about what you're doing to decarbonize. Uh, Hamish, I'd present this question. Do you, do you feel similar pressures from your shareholder or stock stakeholder base? Um, I think the, the shareholders 
want us to do the right thing, but primarily want us to do the right thing in a very profitable way. Um, I think our lenders want us to do the right thing and want us to do the right thing without impairing our credit, which is a slightly different emphasis. Um, and you know, there, there's probably a little bit of conflict between what the equity holders want and what the debt holders want. That's not, not a big conflict yet. Hopefully, it won't be a big conflict. And then there's always that question, are shareholders really valuing ESG efforts, right? And I saw Michael Weber, he was um, uh, moderating the previous panel, Weber Research. You know, you look at their top ten, Navigator's number seven. So we're, look, we're, we're way up there on the list. Um, but if you look at the top ten versus the bottom ten in terms of year-to-date share price performance, investors in the short term for sure care about profitability, right? So that trumps any uh, ESG. And, and you could, you know, the skeptics say, oh, well, you know, these high ESG-rated companies are, you know, uh, much performing much worse than these low ESG, but yes, in a, an extremely strong tanker rate, for example, uh, environment, investors are looking at tanker rates. They aren't looking at ESG profiles for six months. You don't ask any hedge fund. But if you're looking at three years, six years, then you get a different profile from investors. And I think that is when you'll see uh, more ESG kind of outperformance. Yeah. And even for a large private company like Cargill, it's been an amazing thing to see that a Wind, wind, wind Wings project got immediate support from the board and the family members. Um, beyond that, I think it's important here to mention the stakeholders in terms of customers, right? Um, because they're the ones that are ultimately going to have to pay the price for getting to zero. Uh, these costs will have to be passed on. And I've, being in the commodity world, I know enough that they will, customers will look for the lowest cost provider of a solution within the parameters that they need, right? So we're very focused on um, taking our customers along with us in this whole process. Yeah. And, and there's not, there's no great conflict. In fact, there's almost no conflict at all now because fuel is getting more expensive. That's clear. What, whatever fuel you're going to use, it's going to be more expensive in the future than it is today. Saving fuel becomes more and more valuable the more expensive the fuel is. And so, Saving fuel is, is a profitable thing to do. So many, uh, many industry participants believe that the IMO benchmarks are aggressive yet crucial. I would like to know from each of you, um, maybe we can start with Jan, um, what are the biggest risk factors or roadblocks to reaching net zero? And what is the single most important thing you wish the IMO or governments would do to make that happen? Okay. I, I tried to write it down in a single sentence. So basically provide clarity on hard policy and enforcement mechanism to provide a level commercial playing field. And the rest, I think, will figure it out. Since I'm working for DMV, I think safety is always in my heart. So I think safety is very, very important, and the decomposition cannot do without safety. So if you look at the decomposition, we talk about alternative fuel, and most of them are, are liquid gas, and, uh, and some of them are toxic, some of those are flammable and explosive, and those are not used for the crew on board and the seafarers to handle this. And then we also talk about the wing uh, assistant proportions, all those uh, special equipment, carbon capture and storage on board. So those are special equipment and need a special training. 
And uh, DMV has uh, done a study that if we want to reach 2050 target, there will be 7, 000, uh, 750,000 seafarers need a special training and need a special competence. So I think that will be important element to consider. I, I think from my point of view, the, the biggest risk factor is a uh, sort of lack of urgency, especially among the large number of smaller ship owners who maybe don't have the capacity in-house to develop a strategy for their ships. Uh, the, the problem of uh, waiting until we're close to the target dates for these objectives and then having limits on yard capacity, for example, cause a pileup in, in new orders uh, is real. And so I think what the industry needs in the short term and what the IMO can help by setting a, a real uh, path forward uh, down in concrete terms is uh, leaders, leaders who are prepared to step up and make investments and, and show the way. Yeah, I think the, the biggest risk is certainly a watered down or delayed uh, implementation enforcement from IMO. I remember four or five years ago moderating a panel uh, in my previous role around IMO 2020 and right to scrub or not to scrub and uh, investors at the time were like, oh, that thing, you know, it's not really going to get implemented. There's going to be rampant cheating. It's surged January 1st, 2020, but it's going to become 2021, 2022. It didn't, right? In January 1st, 2020, they were pretty impactful on enforcing it, implementing it. Obviously, they gave ship owners time, and there was some transitional period there. But now, I think Hamish and others can attest that cheating is very low uh, in the bigger scheme, and the IMO is implementing it and enforcing it, and you've seen that. Look at VLSFO and HFSFO spreads. Look at scrubber implementation, what have you. So I think the same thing's going to happen. Investors now are kind of skeptical. Yeah, they have these carbon emission goals for reduction, but what does that really mean? Hopefully the IMO means it's a real thing and there will be enforcement uh, for those who are not. Yeah, I mean, uh, the biggest risk is not having, um, you know, uh, predictable and um, stable regulation um, and, you know, basically having the political will to have a very predictable regulation that people believe will be implemented on the schedule um, is crucial to getting the fleet prepared for 2050. So actually I think we're coming up on our, our time here so I'll, I'll end this by asking each of you a yes or no. Very simple. Is achieving net zero by 2050 achievable? I have to say yes. <laughs> Yes for me. Technically, yes. Um, yes, and I'll still be working in 2050. So I'm. <laughs> yes, and I won't be. <laughs> well, thank thank you to each of our panelists and to Capital Link for facilitating this discussion. Thank you.